forget to mention just now, Sean always does this before he like <clears throat> cut it off. Uh, the role that prisons play in all of this, because um, I've been thinking a lot about prisons lately and the role that they serve in capitalism, uh, specifically to you know as as a pool for this reserve army of labor, this surplus population, yeah. um, and, and it serves to both keep them from causing trouble and uh, just warehouses them until such time as capital needs more workers. Like that's, that's a huge part of the picture. Uh, yeah. And it's like a lot cheaper to, you know, I mean, who said that? Like the idea of like, it's, you know, employ one half of the working class to like beat up the other oh, half. It or was some- uh, Gould, the railroad tycoon in the 19th century. Yeah. So it's like, it's just a lot cheaper to have a punitive state, right, than to have a welfare state. And so it totally makes sense that in the U.S., which just spends like an incredibly small portion of its income on, um, on welfare programs and where those programs are so heavily means tested as like part of the history of the racism of this country, that the main way they deal with people who don't have work and who are poor is to like subject them to intense police scrutiny and threat of death. And then of course to police murder and then to like throw them in this massive, uh, in, in prison. I mean, it's a really terrible and dark, dark story. And it's been going on for a while now. And, uh, Thankfully, we saw, I think, I'm not sure if we call it a rebellion or an insurrection, but, you know, let's not forget a few months ago, we saw the, the social tinder, we saw things light a flame, and it yeah. seems like it's died off now, but it's really too soon, obviously, because this is such a, you know, you're mentioning the different, you know, labor market conditions uh, and social protections in the U.S. and Europe. You also have the, um, I believe it's called the Huko system in China, which takes an entire yeah. swath of, I don't know how many, half a billion people and puts them in this formal, informal market with its own sort of social dis- disciplinary techniques of uh, sending people back to their farms and unable to strike. So, like, who knows? I don't know what BLM is going to mean. I don't think any of us do. But we're starting to see some sort of reaction to, to this miserable state of affairs. Yeah. And I mean, my my understanding is like and you get this sense when you read these U.N. or like, you know, there's all these institutions that generate global reports that are for states and like capital to understand what's going on. And they're all talking about like a rising trend of social unrest. So they're really aware of the extent to which like social struggle is back on the table now. And uh, yeah, I think. I think that what we've seen so far is like episodic social movements, but we've also seen that countries that have had very large sort of peaceful episodic social movements, like relatively peaceful ones, come back a few laters with like really intense, right, um, and combative social struggles. And the U.S. is an example of that. France, Hong Kong, like Chile. Um, So... You know, I think that the trend is pretty clear. Like people are testing out to see if they can convince their leaders to try a more democratic system. And then when they learn the lesson that doesn't work, they they engage in much more intense forms of, of confrontation. And so, you know, that gives me a lot of hope 
actually for the future. Like as much as, you know, seeing any given wave of struggle, like rise and seem to have so much possibility and then taper off when it, when it, when it kind of finds its limits that it like can't, you know, people are struggling so hard and getting so little out of it. Um, that's obviously people can only do that for so long. And also police and states, they adapt over time and they figure out how to confront those struggles. But I think that like, where's that anger going to go? It's not like going to disappear, right? right? It's not like people got what they wanted. So we should kind of set our sights on, you know, being immersed in the movements when they happen and trying to think about what we can do to support them uh, when they are happening and when they're not happening. Um, but, you know, we also need to like set our sights on like, what is our vision of the future? And like, what could these movements, how could they transform the world? Um, and what will they have to do to transform the world in order to get out of their situation? That's, that's what I think is the really important question. Yeah. Word. Um, we're in the bonus now, by the way, in case y'all didn't realize that. Get a little casual. So let's talk about that um, because you refer most of the book is spent building this very strong case against capitalism. And then we have this beautiful chapter about how we could potentially organize the world in a way that actually makes sense and is not prone to periodic crises. Spoiler alert, it's communism. (laughs) Um, And then there's like a little bit about how we get there, but not that much. So I want to talk a little bit about it because, you know, it's not going to happen automatically, as we know. That's what we so do we, here on the show. So let's just get into yeah. it. So, so you, you talk about these great social movements of our time that are popping off all over the world. Um, and you're saying that they need a real post-capitalist vision in order to succeed, right? Um, and I'll quote you. Without a clear vision of this coming world, it's easy to get lost along the way. Um, is that all that these movements need because uh, it seems they're also wildly outgunned by the violent arm of the bourgeois state. And even if everyone became a communist tomorrow, um, we know that would not necessarily be enough to have a revolution, right? You need to organize, you need power. So how do these movements get a vision? Uh, is it the party? Do we need some, co- I keep coming back to the idea of the party. Always it with seems the like party. A- Seems like a great idea, honestly. More and more I think about it, I'm like, yeah. And and what else, in addition to a vision, do they need in order to uh, achieve our goals? Mm. Okay, well, uh, we can we can talk about all that. I think that it's really, I mean, the way I set it up in the book where I talk a lot about the vision and not that much about how we get there is not only because I don't know the answer to those questions, but it's also because I don't know the answer to those questions. I think that like we still, because the movements that are occurring are still very episodic, like we don't yet know how the working class movement or the real movement will like congeal. You know, we don't know what it's going to look like, how it's going to sort of find a more enduring form. And those forms of, like, organization, which aren't even, like, they're not really, like, the party in the past. They're just, like, forms of, like, coherent and and enduring organization. We don't yet really know what those look like. And so I'm, like, kind of agnostic about the strategic questions because I think it's, it's sort of hard to ask 
those questions right now. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be like thinking about them and on the ground, kind of like trying to, you know, make something work. And we need, we clearly live in a time of experimentation. And I would be very, I would be very wary of anyone who was, I mean, everyone has to be, you know, in order to work really hard to change the world, you have to be incredibly strongly convinced that you have the idea that's going to do it. Uh But I think that like, if you're not one of those charismatic super people, you should be a little bit wary and you should think like, it's actually a time of experimentation and it would be really great if lots of people with lots of different ideas were trying to convince people and trying to, you know, find a way forward. So that's sort of my take on those questions at the moment. But I think that, you know, the thing we do know is that it will come from vibrant, multi-tendency, you know, um, working class struggles that will be partially workplace struggles and partially struggles that expand far beyond the workplace. Um, and that those struggles are intensifying and we don't yet know what form they'll take, but we kind of put our, you know, we, we, we strongly believe that it's from the, the force provided that the, from those movements as they become organized, that, real social change will take place. So I'm sorry, that's kind of a cop-out answer. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, we that's do that fine. all the time, too. I think that, that the, the, way, the way to look at it, at least on this show, and I'm glad you agree, is to try to learn from the struggles themselves. This is the creation of theory. It happens day in and day out on the ground, in the workplaces and outside of them. And, uh, you know, it's our job to think about and cohere and analyze and, uh, you know, to keep track of and be part of these struggles as they grow and as they move around the world, hopefully, at some point changing from episodic into something more uh, coherent. And yeah. Well, some, some would say that we have a bit of a blueprint of what has worked in the past in order to create revolutions, and maybe we need to build on that instead of trying this new nebulous way that has never really been tried or worked on any level before. But that brings me to this Next question, um, where I say, um, <laughs> I like the third person <laughs> narratizing of this. <laughs> I, yeah. So I noticed you're somewhat critical of the old forms of organization, right? The idea that organizing at the point of production is really the centerpiece to the proletarian revolution. Um, I also noticed you are pretty critical, as we've been talking about, of the more traditional Marxist-Leninist concept of how we get scientifically from here to there, you know, passing through a stage of state socialism, which hopefully spreads to many other countries. Uh, Step two, question mark. Step three, communism. (laughs) So um, I got to ask, are you now, sir, or have you ever been a communizer? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. No, I mean, that's that's my world. That's what I come out of. And I think, you know, the book is an attempt to speak to a wider audience. And that's why I don't even really use the term communism. I talk about post-scarcity because I think for a lot of people, it's hard to put their toe in the water in a way. And I say, like, look, you know, what I'm calling post-scarcity is what people have called socialism and communism in the past. And I, I try to distinguish that from, you know, it's true, like, I'm not a Maoist. I'm not a Stalinist. I think that those were pretty bad visions of like how to get out of capitalism. Uh, and you know, whatever we could talk about that. Probably this isn't the. the That's episode. a whole bag of 
bag of worms, <laughs> I almost said. No, I always feel the need to like rep my um, Marxist, more Marxist Leninist leaning friends when I'm on the yeah. show. And then when I'm talking to them, I rep y'all's point of view. And maybe someday <laughs> I will have a, a strong decision on who's right. And maybe there'll be some recomposition at some point. Who knows? You know what was interesting? I asked, um, what's the, the guy? He's a really sweet older man who wrote The Revolution in the Air. Um, oh, Max Ebaum? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I went to a talk that he gave in Chicago. And, I, and, you know, I was working on all this stuff. And I asked him this exact question. I was like, when you guys were doing all this stuff, like, did you ever talk about, like, what communism was like did you have an account of what it was that you were fighting for and he just like he was just like you know no we didn't like we never really talked about that and I was like kind of blown away because I, I sort of imagined that somehow that was part of their conversation but I think that the the kind of global struggle between proletarian and bourgeois nations basically like made up most of their yeah, kind of discussion about that stuff, yeah, which, I, which I think yeah. is really unfortunate. Well, I yeah, think that's insane. I've always thought that there's some, there was something um, historically cool. determined about that. I think that in the 1960s, where the real capitalist abundance seemed like it was there, where it seemed as though like a strong working class social formation with institutions, with political power, and potentially with organizational power, if, if one were to like radicalize the unions and stop the war and bring the war home, that in the 60s it seemed like a lot of the heavy lifting was, was done for some sort of transformation. I think maybe now, 40, 50 years later, uh, it, it seems to us now that like we've never been as far, we've never been so far and that waiting for capitalism or state capitalism or really existing socialism to ripen itself in a sort of automatic process, uh, I think we can see now that that is uh, an impossibility and maybe always was. But people in the 60s and the 70s, I'm not sure that they could have looked out from their vantage point and seen the sort of vast changes to not just global production, but uh, to class composition in the United States, in China, and all over the world, and certainly not seen the death of uh, really existing socialism. Yeah. Well, I, I think... Mean, yeah. The idea is, you know, um, folks are trying things all over the world. Folks are trying to have revolutions. They're trying to change their economy and transform social relations. But that's never going to happen as long as we've got the great Satan doing CIA coups on everybody <laughs> who tries it, you know. That's still a very popular position, to be honest. There are still people out there who say that we're, like, stopping one coup away from implementing some sort of socialism, right? Well, I mean, I get where they're coming from, right? Because these are a lot of the time um, societies in flux, making a real effort at transforming things from the ground up, starting from very difficult circumstances. And, you know, it's hard to even know if that if that idea works, if that path works, as long as you have um, capitalist imperialist forces um, fucking them in the ass every step of the way you know yeah but it's certainly not i think that gets the puts the cart before the horse right like ultimately it's not third world exploitation well i i'm just saying that you, you we would we have to start focusing on uh capitalist production and commodity relations here today <laughs> as they exist right now because just stopping imperialism in a sort of nebulous way misses the point because 
imperialism doesn't come because people are bad or because capitalists are greedy or because politicians are bloodthirsty and craven. It comes out of the sort of dynamics, this sort of molecular dynamics of capital accumulation day in and day out. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting us off track here, but I think. Oh, yeah. Issues. Don't know where you're going. I will get you there. (laughs) I think I think to bring this back to the to the debate and the question, I, I think I agree with Jamie that in the. Uh, the last chapter, I believe it is, of your book, <clears throat> you put together, I think, a very compelling and it's, um, yeah, a very compelling but also kind of like tentative sort of uh, thought experiment about what a, uh, a post-scarcity or a society of abundance, a free association of producers would look like. And you say that, I believe, if these automation theorists can have their own sort of, you know, mind palaces that they create about a, a post-scarcity automated world that we can do the same thing because ultimately, you know, their way of getting there and also like the dynamics behind that are already false, but the, but actually doing that is, is a powerful, tr- powerful tool for us. Yeah. And I especially like, okay, this is something that I want to talk about because I feel like this was sort of one thing that was missing from uh, four futures when we talked to Peter Fraze about it, um, the idea that you can only get to a communist post-scarcity kind of libertarian communist world um, with the Star Trek replicator technology. And I'm like, wait a second, that doesn't exist. Um, We have 10 years before climate apocalypse accelerates. Like we need communism without the replicator. And I really like it that you talk about how we could do that. However, um, I am a little unclear on how some of some of how it's going to work because you say we can redefine abundance as a social relationship, and um, I just want to unpack a little bit what you mean by that. And um, are we always going to have to ration certain things, or is that not what you mean by scarcity versus abundance? We just threw a lot at you. Good luck with that. Yeah. No, I mean, so for me, just to step back a little bit, something you were saying earlier, like for me, it's more about being able to like lay out the five sentence version of what we would do and why it would be much better than this world. So it's not like an extensive blueprint of that. And I've been doing a lot more research on like all these different answers to the question of how it would work. Uh, and, And it's interesting. I think there's a bunch of different ways to do it. But in any case, what I mean by saying that like abundance is a social relationship is that what, what, when you read like people like Thomas More and kind of earlier thinkers and like the history of the beautiful idea of communism, you'll just see that like what they mean by abundance is not what it came to mean in like basically like 19th century economics, which starts to redefine the meaning of scarcity. Like in the 19th century, scarcity means like a defined period of lack of access to basic goods. You know, there's a period of scarcity and abundance would mean never having a period like that, never having a period of scarcity. So like for me, abundance means organizing society in a way that like we have this core of work that we organize in a planned way that meets everyone's needs, like without question, kind of in the UBI mode, but not by money, right? By actually organizing cooperatively the work that has to be done. And on that basis, that functions as a kind of 
post-scarcity machine or abundance machine that produces the experience of abundance outside of that sector. So essentially it like creates a world where you just don't worry, like no one can ever go hungry again. No one can like find out that because they're not willing to do something, they're the fundamental material conditions of their life are going to be taken away from them. And that feeling of abundance, first of all, it would transform what like how the work relationship exists in the realm of remaining necessary work, because it would mean that like because people can't have they can't be threatened with material dispossession and material um, insecurity and scarcity. Um, they have to like want to do that work. They have to be invited in. There have to be non-material incentives, in other words, that convince people to do their fair share of the work that has to be done. But it also means that outside of that, like we would actually live in the world that we want to live in, like a world where people face their lives. It's like, I have a certain amount of time on this earth. Like, yes, we're not talking about overcoming mortality, right? We're talking about a world where people still have a certain amount of time on the earth, but instead of thinking like, you know, shit, how am I going to like survive? How am I going to make myself useful in a way that like is going to run my life? You look at your life as like a series of, you know, adventures and like open possibilities to do things and reinvent yourself. That's what the technologies that we have right now should make possible. It doesn't mean that you can do those things. If everyone does that and no one does the work that has to be done, then like you're going to live in a really shitty society, right? Um, and and I've been very influenced by, you know, feminist Marxist theories about what happens, right? Like what happens to those kind of reproductive labors when people aren't willing to do them? Well, they fall on certain groups of people, right? Um, who've been historically disadvantaged. But what that means is that we need to like come together and consciously figure out how to organize that necessary work so that we can all actually be free and live free of the kinds of insecurity that come from being materially dispossessed. So I hope that makes sense. It's not a, it's not a depiction of a world of an endless material cornucopia, but I think that's a very false and misleading understanding of what abundance like really means. I yeah. Guess. I mean, luxury could just be having a lot of free time where you can do whatever you want. Because I think everyone listening probably understands what a luxury that is under capitalism, right? And how amazing it would be if we just had, you know, we had our fucking lives back. We could do whatever we want, go where we want, um, study whatever we want without having to worry about making money off of it. Um, I also like how thinking about it just now, actually, the automation theorists kind of techno determinist future is very much a capitalist vision because the technology really takes precedence over the actions of humans, uh -huh. right? Whereas uh -huh. um, you kind of flip it on its head and say, okay, I'm not a Luddite, but technology should be serving us here, right? Not the other way around. So, you know, maybe in the future, uh, there are some tasks that people like to do. Like, maybe we don't need um, robots to do all of the gardening. Maybe some people want to do that. Or maybe they want to do it with a little robot help. Like, we can, we can parcel out the work and automate things based on what people actually want and what people actually need, rather than based on this, like, 
objective march of science, if that makes sense. Well, this is what yeah. uh, makes Marx's um, theory of commodity fetishism not just some sort of metaphysical flourish that he throws out in Capital. It's central to like what <laughs> our, our fight is against, you know, not just the law of value, but also the economy dominating us, you know, things seeming, technology seeming as, seeming as though they act upon us and our own creative powers and our potential to cooperate and uh, live free and happy and productive lives is, are taken from us. And so the obverse of that, the flip side of that, of course, is an association of free producers living in a post-scarcity society where these things are shared and uh, where we don't have to toil for somebody else or for the quote-unquote economy anymore. For the man. For the man, man. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's right. It's like, I think, I mean, I guess that the thing that the big... The big like aha moment for me was reading, I mean, a bunch of different things, but reading Marx as part of a longer tradition of people who said that there isn't just like one principle that 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 sort of like defines life in the post-capitalist world. It's like, yes, there is a positive value to work. Like work isn't only drudgery. And even when work is drudgery, when it's shared, when we're like, when we, when we feel like there's not a loss of dignity in the work, when we're doing it with other people, when we have autonomy over our work conditions, when we have, um, when we're using skills that we've mastered, like we actually feel like, you know, we're, we're doing skilled work, we're putting our skills to use. And when we feel like the work we're doing has an actual purpose that serves our community, that we're doing something nice for people, like even, you know, even work that isn't our own creative, self-determining kind mm -hmm. of uh, thing, it's still like, it's still, you get something out of it, you know, like there's yeah, a place yeah. for that kind of work. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't automate stuff away if we feel like that. But, you know, even in a world where we can't automate it away, it doesn't mean that there isn't something really fulfilling from doing that kind of reproductive labor. Um, if it's shared out, like saying it's great isn't a reason to say, hey, it's so great, you should do it, and I'm going <laughs> to go do something else, right? It's like the fact that we we say together, like we're all going to organize and plan how we do this so that everyone can be free and everyone yeah. has access to free time. But then in that world of free time, like we're not we're not thinking about free time merely as like, oh, work is so hard and we're just going to go home and like laze around. But that is what a lot of people want to do and people will want to just like hang out and that's totally worthwhile. Um, but it's also like the world of freedom is the world of like where you're not so, where you're not constrained to try to meet society's needs together, but you're really free to like do all different kinds of things. And I think that one of the limits for how Marxists or other people often talk about freedom is they think of it really as like an individual realm of people sort of like either relaxing or just working on themselves. And the person who really may had a big influence on me here was Kropotkin. He has a great chapter in The Conquest of Bread called The Need for Luxury. Like there's a human need. One of the needs that we have is for luxury. And he basically says like what people will do, because he has this exact sort of vision of like reduction in the work time, reorganization of work so that it's like collectively undertaken and has all these positive properties. But then also in their free time, people form all kinds of associations. And there's like all of this kind of voluntary ways that people get together to form amateur scientific societies like Kropotkin himself was a part of. 
you know, or societies for making music. It's like a world of connection. It's not just a world where you like retreat and become just a pure individual, though you can also do that, right? It's like, it makes for a kind of a real possibility for individuality that's not possible in capitalism. But at the same time on that basis, it allows us to like connect with all of these people in all different kinds of ways and find the particular things that we're passionate about. So it's this kind of separation of the realm of necessity and realm of freedom that felt very important to me. And oddly, someone who's a big critic of Karl Marx, though I think mostly misguided, uh, Hannah Rents, The Human Condition, weirdly ended up influencing me a little bit oh. on these questions. So, yeah, you talk about the realm of necessity versus the realm of freedom. Uh, and I noticed um, while you claim that you like the communization people, um, that's not quite as far as they want to go, right? Like we had that episode on Dove uh, where yeah. I found myself... I. I've had a weird journey in terms of getting communizer pilled, right? Because I was initially very resistant to this idea of Dove and Marx, by the way, that we could uh, somehow collapse the distinction between work and leisure and everything is just stuff you do in the course of your life to maintain homeostasis, you know? Um, I was like, what? No, that's crazy. Like, even... Even in the past, even in primitive communism, people were like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go do some gathering now. I'm exerting myself. And then they were like, all right, now I'm going to chill in a hammock. Like, I feel like that is a somewhat transhistorical concept. And the idea that we could do away with it at this point in time seemed kind of silly to me. But then, like, I got more and more into it because I'm very attracted to extreme ideas. And then I was like, fuck, yeah, let's do it. Um, <laughs> but then but then I saw, I saw I saw you <laughs> going pretty hard against it. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. Maybe I was right the first time. You, I don't know. Wait, what does right mean? That was a very winding road that we just took there. <laughs> oh, I was I was very resistant to the idea that we could abolish the distinction between uh, work and leisure, which is not to say that it couldn't get a bit blurrier, sure, right? Sure. Because most people fucking hate their jobs right now. Uh, and leisure time, even leisure time is just totally subsumed. It's like, oh, I have to recharge my batteries so I can go back to work. Right. Like, obviously, some of that's going to change. People are going to do things they find more fulfilling. But could you ever fully collapse the distinction? Do we I mean, want think, to? No. Yeah, that's so. OK, that's that's a really interesting question. And I don't know before we tackle the question of could you ever do it and would you ever want to do it? I think it's really important to me, and maybe this seems like, I don't know, but there's there's really two options in a way. Maybe there's more. But, but there's, on the one hand, you have like the Fourierist William, like there's, there's Charles Fourier and William Morris. They're the vision of communism. They're like the collapsists. Like they're not collapse like society's going to collapse, but like we, we can we can turn all work into play. Um, and I think that that is like very unrealistic and it's actually the kind of, it's sort of the opposite, but it ends up in the same place as the automation theory. Cause the automation theory also says like we can collapse, we can get rid of necessity and transform all of the world into play by like having machines do all the work. And then the Fourierists or the Morris people, they say we can kind of achieve the same end by turning by making necessity into freedom, by like making our experience of drudgery, you know, more or less the same as play. Yeah, and it, I worked, think that it worked in uh, Tom Sawyer, right? Yeah, 
So I think those are both the wrong option and that Marx actually like he 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 says very directly in in Capital and the notes for volume 3 that like it's not Fourier is wrong and all work can't become play. We can reduce the realm of necessity but we can't abolish it. And I think when he said that, he's actually part of a long line of thinkers that goes back to Thomas More, who's like the first communist in that regard. Um, and, and actually, like, there's a longer story, which I mentioned in the book, that um, this guy, Etienne Cabet, who was a French Rousseauian Republican, he reads Thomas More's um, uh, book in the British Library and has this conversion experience and then he invents the word communism once he becomes a Morist. So like the whole tradition of communism really clearly, and if you read more, like there's reasons why no one's really like a Morist. But if you read more, you'll just see he's it's like really similar to Marx. He's talking about the enclosures. He's talking about all these people losing access to land and being proletarianized and then being like murdered because they have to steal in order to survive. And he lays out this whole plan. He's like, we can only get there by abolishing private property and money, organizing a planned sector to take care of the work that remains to be done, and then live beyond that in a, li a life of abundance with as little work as possible and as much enjoyment as possible. And it's really fascinating. But I think Marx is part of a long line of thinkers who really maintain that that separation is important. And I will say on the record that most of my communization friends are Fourierists. Like they, they can't, they do think that you can collapse those two realms. I'm not exactly sure why or how, but that ends up being, I think, a real block to thinking. Like if you want to have the five sentence version, which is my ultimate aim, is like to be able to say to someone who's like, yeah, but what would you do? Like I want to have that five sentence version of what we would do. And I, I don't think you can do it if you're a Fourierist. I just think that Fourierism is like an impossible dream, basically, and not even a really desirable one. Shots fucking fired. <laughs> well, it's like being a Rousseauian. A lot of people probably don't even know that they're a Fourierist, you know, but it's good for them to find out. Actually, when I said there's two positions, but actually three, the third one is the Rousseau position, yeah. which is actually also a kind of abolished money position, but requires that we like really make ourselves much more ascetic and like remove all of the pleasures and complexities of life so that we're not enticed by anything in our households and we just live and enjoy ourselves in like the public realm like you know doing politics together which i also think is actually a pretty negative vision i just read the, yeah. uh, the gm uh, tamas article about uh rousseauian uh populist um rousseauian populism versus marxist uh demon demonic um have you ever read that yeah. before yeah that had a really big influence on this endnotes article that i wrote with some of the other collective members um i think it's really history important of yeah that had a huge influence on us we should do um an episode on it sometime we should maybe like try to get john together and have like uh you know grill you guys on what you did in endnotes yeah you should grill us grill us on endnotes <laughs> but like but yeah i think that like once you abandon the fourierism you can say to people like look like here's what we would do we would like take over the infrastructures of capitalist civilization we would you know we would take people who are already really overworked and we'd really reduce their work. And we take people who've been like, 
who do really shitty, meaningless jobs or, and who have no real opportunity to like do that kind of meaningful purpose, purposeful work. And we like give them work to do. And so on the whole, people would do a lot less work than before. And that work would include things that, you know, have been confined to the realm of household production, which we've all experienced so much more intensely during COVID times, I think, like, you know, cooking and cleaning and everything else. And like, so we take over the infrastructures, transform and redistribute work, establish a realm of free giving where like all people's basic needs are just met without any stipulations. And then that would create the possibility for people to have a lot of free time, both to like figure out what they want to do and to like participate in these kind of big political processes and debates about how to reorganize society, but then also to like begin to have the time and the freedom to figure out what their passions are and what they want to do at the time that they have on earth. And that that world would just be so much better. It would be a way to like, you know, really deal with climate change by like guaranteeing people's material security and then beginning to like transform infrastructures to respond to climate change. It means being able to like overcome personal forms of domination, um, creating conditions for that. And it means like actually getting to a world that doesn't require growth. And that generally is just like, you know, takes the benefits of capitalist development, but turns them toward human ends. And that we can do that right now. Like we don't need automation. We don't need to turn work into play. Like we can do it. We can just do it. We can do it now. (laughs) I mean, we are to a large degree living in a world of abundance. Um, Unlike the anarchist planet in Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, where they still manage to have like a pretty decent uh, anarcho, what do you want to call it? Anarcho-communist society set up even in conditions of scarcity because that's how they all survive. Like it just seems like a fucking no-brainer that we could do it on this giant blue planet. I mean, assuming we fix the climate change problem, right? Like one thing follows from the other, right? Like, uh, you know, if, if we don't stop uh, infinite growth on a finite planet, we're not going to even get to, like, neo-feudalism, let alone communism. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like, I hate cooking for myself. I was just thinking about it when you were talking. Like, I like cooking for other people and myself so much more than just, like, sad meals for one. And if I had a fucking commissary in my building... I would be down there making dank vegetarian food for everyone all the time and feeling really stoked about it. But I would say that because I'm a communist. <laughs> Shall we start I'm, to like, go ahead? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, there's this great video online that I encourage everyone to watch by those, you know, those people who draw cartoons for like explaining social theory, like RSA animate. They have one that's about, um, uh, about um, like what really motivates people and why money is a terrible motivator. And they come up with this theory that's really similar to what Kropotkin says. Again, that like what, what makes work enjoyable is mastery, autonomy, and purpose. You know, like when you cook for other people, you're like, you know, you have that experience, right? Of like collectively controlling your work process, using these like incredible cooking skills that you've developed. I don't know if I've ever eaten your food, but I assume that it's, <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. And then, you know, and, and having a purpose, like those are things that give people a lot of meaning, right? And so many of us have jobs 
where we don't even have one of those things, let alone all three. And that's what makes, that's part of what makes work so terrible. This yeah. is one of the, the dirty, dirty secrets that I have uh, being in the unionized building trades. One of those last places where there's protections and decent wages and relative autonomy. The dirty secret is that people look at it and think about dirty proles. But if you look at any of the you know, data on polling or how people feel. Uh, the trades are, and contractors too, right? Construction is one of the most, um, uh, like, self-satisfying, satisfying industries. If, if you look at what, how people respond, because you have that autonomy, because you have the chance to use your skills and, and, and work cooperatively. But unfortunately, that only takes place in this tiny sphere of production in our society. So, like, if, if I'm getting, and I know a lot of our listeners are also in construction too, that sort of autonomy and competence that you feel and sort of collective purposefulness uh, in work and creating for society, that's something that we can already glimpse a bit, even under like austere and shitty capitalist conditions. And it's something that we would want to generalize, not eliminate. Yeah, it's amazing how often I, I tweeted about this reading your book, Aaron, how often reading like big, smart books and works of theory leads us back around to really simple ideas, right? Like I was having all of these ideas when I was like a teenager in Food Not Bombs, like, well, money is fake. What if we just <laughs> fucking get rid of it? No, but it's nice to know that there's like actually a very solid, uh, undergirding for those ideas yeah it's funny like they can get really simple and then they can get super complex again like i'm reading all of these accounts of how to you know organize basically the realm of necessity and it is amazing how many different theories there are about how you do it and whether you need labor chits or whether you can do it like with you know just natural quantities in kind and all this kind of stuff but um you know, that, that kind of like, uh, yeah, the simple ideas are the enduring ones. And also like, again, I think the most important thing is to have that five minute kind of conversation, um, right. Where you can actually like explain to someone in simple terms, what it is that we're trying to do. That ass. Word. So I think that's a really good place to kind of start finishing things out. Um, I got to ask you, because, you know, we've been talking about this beautiful vision of the future, uh, but we're not super sure yet how we're going to get there. And things are getting pretty dicey. What's your over under? Do you think communism is going to win? <laughs> yeah, I actually do. I don't know why. I don't know why. I think I think like I have two ways of answering that question. There's like the rational brain that's like, OK, the chances are small, but it's the only thing that would really work. So it makes sense to like try as hard as we can to get it. And even if you want anything less than that, it still makes sense to fight as hard as possible yes. for like the maximal solution because we know historically like workers have only won anything when they've presented a credible threat of really transforming society. So exactly. like there's a lot of rational reasons to put your eggs in that basket, even if you think the chances of it working are small. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, I just think like it will win. And I, I also think that like, if we ever did invent artificial intelligence and had these like super smart computers and you, and you, you know, you imagine like someone going and asking the computer this question, like, what should humanity do? 
to solve all of our problems of war and conflict and all this stuff. Like they would just tell you like communism, that's the answer to that question. It's just so obvious. And at some point I think, yeah, people will come around to it. I just hope they come around to it before we like annihilate the conditions for comfortable life on planet earth. Amen. Amen. Well, this was, I think, I have to say, one of our best uh, and most engaging episodes that we've had in a really, really long time, Aaron. So it was really awesome to get you on. And uh, yeah, really, really, really interesting stuff. Cool. I was really glad to be here. It's great talking to you guys. Yeah. And maybe awesome. I was going to say, uh, the, like, uh, just like on Passover now, we always say after COVID, it's like the uh, next year in Jerusalem thing. So maybe mm-hmm. when, uh, maybe sometime soon we'll be out uh, in your neck of the woods and we can all grab a drink or something. Great. Yeah, I hope so. Hell yeah. Keep, keep up the good work, man. Uh, this book is really good. I'm going to try to get as many people to read it as possible. Um, I guess I should say that it's out now on Verso Books. And uh, this will be one more. I, I should say that all the listeners could then start working on their five sentences, their five sentence explanation, because it's a really good idea and we should all start doing it. You can make that the winning, you know, five sentences could be your new unrest is the best. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> all right, Aaron, good times, man. Thanks so much. Thanks.